the idea of building a startup is all, always connected with the word failure, right? And failing at something is especially hard. Uh, I would say, you know, for some Asian parents, and failing in front of your friends, in front of your relatives, in front of your family, I think it's a giant, giant risk that you know prevented many people from trying doing entrepreneurship in the first place. But you know, after coming to Canada, and I think the same thing for the United States, it feels very different of as to how people perceive um, perceive your failure, right? Like I told you, I'm very confidently at the beginning of the podcast, I failed two of my early projects, and I'm saying that with proud. I don't feel ashamed. So I think that, first of all, is a very large piece of why the culture is important. Hey, George, great to have you. Good to see you again. It's been fun chatting with you a few times that we have. Uh, welcome to Waterloo Grid Podcast. Uh, I'm pretty sure founders out there, quite like yourself, I also think of myself as a founder, um, would love listening in uh, on this episode. I'd love to pick your brains. Hopefully you pick mine. And uh, let's find out what's fascinating in the uh, startup ecosystem. Um, yeah. Be before we get started, a uh, big shout out and a giant thank you to the uh, Davy Johnston R&T Park for supporting this podcast. All right, let's get it going with, uh, with you. Um, so what is your story, George? What is your personal story? Where do you come from? How did you get out of the University of Waterloo and end up doing what you do? Yeah, and thanks so much for having me, uh, Jay. Super excited to be on the podcast. So my journey is actually quite interesting and I think quite, you know, like not typical one. Uh, so I was born and raised in China uh, for mm -hmm. the first 18 years of my life. Um, I spent quite a lot of time there, you know, raised uh, by, you know, my mom and dad. Uh, my dad is actually an entrepreneur himself. <clears throat> he actually goes a lot, goes out a lot. He's a general contractor. So a lot of things that he does is actually working with other clients. And sometimes I see my, my set dad working on the weekends on Saturday and Sunday. And I'm always very inspired by the lifestyle. And I think the entrepreneurship uh, grit is in my family. Although we didn't really feel like it, we're not like starting businesses, but we're starting small businesses at a time. And I, I had a very good experience with that. So I came to University of Waterloo um, at the age of 18. Um, and it was my first time actually coming to Canada. So I was super, super excited. And during my first year of college, I started two different side projects with a few of my college friends. And I think that got me really excited uh, about the path of entrepreneurship. And, and because I studied computer science, so it was very interesting to build different tools, build different you know projects and just keep see if it can run. So the first two I've ran all failed, <laughs> but I was super excited to learn from the failure themselves and actually, you know, learning from the ashes. So that's how I actually got started in my journey. Nice. And why entrepreneurship after graduation, especially the University of Waterloo, right? Um, why not pick up a gig? I mean, it's a fantastic university, great computer science, pedigree, physics, math. So, so why entrepreneurship? I think, I think it's something I am always inspired by, um, like after early computer science. I think part of it is my family had entrepreneurship routes and I always think, you know, maybe I can do a little bit better um, mm -hmm. starting a business that can scale a lot more than just a small business. So that's always in my bone. And af even after coming to University of Waterloo, I think a lot of my peers inspire me a lot. Um, you know, like they all got awesome, awesome internships, co-ops, like big companies. You know, a lot of them I wouldn't even imagine even going to as a second year student. So mm -hmm. I think part of this journey is I, I also interned at two very 
awesome companies, and both of them are startups, especially my second one, Doc.io, mm-hmm. where it was a very small team of 10 people. And that's after my second project has failed. So mm-hmm. essentially, you know, getting a team, I wasn't really anticipating anything. But, you know, Nick Macario, the CEO at the time, was super, super awesome. He actually mentored me personally. And working with a small team of 10, I finally understood what was it like to run a startup, you know, as a team. And I was super fascinated. And I think that got me a jump start and gave me motivation. I wanted to do something on my own. Nice. Nice. We'll, we'll get to your startup in a second. I want to see if we can draw parallels from, from my story and your story, right? So I... Very, very, very similar to yours, George. I uh, moved to the U.S. after my undergrad, actually, in India. And at that time, quite like the wave now, entrepreneurship was fairly hot. And after my grad school in the U.S., I decided to pursue entrepreneurship um, through somebody else's startup, right? And there, there were two things that you mentioned that that I found interesting and I can sort of draw a parallel based off of where um, I come from. Uh, the first was um, the, the macroeconomic conditions that lead, you know, a young engineer to think that as an entrepreneur, you have more flexibility um, and wiggle room to solve a giant problem, right? And, and I sort of went after that and I, I reckon you did too. And the second one uh, is the opportunity that was provided in a country like uh, uh, Canada that allows for uh, an immigrant to come and build something from scratch. Um, so in both those cases, right? The first case, your the, the, the conditions that allowed you to be an entrepreneur. And the second case, the opportunity for an immigrant to be a successful startup. Can you walk us through both those elements? Yeah, I think the first element is definitely the cultural element. I think in, in many areas of the world, you know, including, I think, maybe even China and India, uh, mm-hmm. the idea of building a startup is all, always connected with the word failure, right? And <laughs> failing at something is especially hard, uh, I would say, you know, for some Asian parents. And mm-hmm. failing in front of your friends, in front of your relatives, in front of your family, I think it's a giant, giant risk that, you know, prevented many people from trying doing entrepreneurship in the first place. But, you know, after coming to Canada, and I think the same thing for the United States, it feels very different of, as to how people perceive um, perceive your failure, right? Like I told you, I'm very confidently at the beginning of the podcast, I failed two of my early projects. And I'm right. saying that with proud. I don't feel ashamed. So I mm-hmm. think that, first of all, is a very large piece of why the culture is important. And I think the second element is ecosystem. It's like when you're building something, can you find people, institutions, partners, investors, you know, even your teammates that help and grow with you. And personally speaking, I find Waterloo to be a perfect place for me at the start. And I think, you know, even coming to the Accelerator Center with the support of the Canadian government and even I think, you know, maybe like Waterloo Regional Government uh, supporting us so that we don't pay a lot of fees is an example of that ecosystem, right? In many areas mm-hmm. of the world, you pay a lot just to get to know someone. You need to be influential. Mm-hmm. You need to be connected. And, you know, a lot of a lot of things, pieces in Canada and U.S., they remove those barriers. You don't need to be, you don't need to be connected. You don't need to be a millionaire to build a startup. And I think mm-hmm. those two pieces are very important 
on my journey at least. Awesome. Yeah, I love it. I love those two things that you mentioned, the culture that allows for you to look at failure as a stepping stone as opposed to something that's taboo. And very much like you said, I think in Asian cultures, it's definitely changing, uh, but it's it's still considered a bit taboo uh, compared to North America. What about the uh, immigrant card? I think Canada is very, very uniquely placed right now um, because of sociopolitics across the world to be able to draw some of the best founders, right? Um, as an immigrant, um, do you think there's an extra element of hunger to succeed in a, in a foreign country or, or is it the other way around as an immigrant? Do you find it hard, um, uh, to succeed because it's a new culture, new place, et cetera. And I'll, and I'll walk you through what I went through as well. Although that was 20 years ago. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Personally speaking, I, I think for me, it was easier coming here. Um, you know, I, like when I was in China, there was like, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know, but, you know, fierce competition among classmates, among students. Mm-hmm. And, and and that competition has started when I was, I think, 10, 12 years old. So mm-hmm. it has been competition since. And I have gotten used to the competitive environment of, you know, being a student in China, having competing for better schools, competing for better resources and, and all in fair competition. Right. It's all fair. So just and I enjoyed every bit of it. And after coming to Canada, um, I've realized that, you know, sometimes I'm pulling a little bit harder um, than mm-hmm. everyone else I know. And and part of it is like I actually enjoy that. And I think the reason why I'm pulling a lot harder, um, gave an example, like in my high school, I go to class at 730 and I mm-hmm. a.m. in the morning and I get mm-hmm. off at 1030 in the evening. Right. So it's a very different curriculum than many of the Canadian friend peers I have who I think get off at fairly early, 2 or 3 p.m. Um, so so that lifestyle, I think, has given me, like, it, it, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not adjusting to it, right? So I, I'm coming here, I'm keeping the same energy, keeping the same synergy. And I think yep. that gives me more advantage compared with a few of my peers. Um, and I think that was the primary piece. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you, right? <laughs> the... Uh... 20 years ago, when I came to um, the U.S. for grad school, it's very similar in the sense that I had to uh, put in that extra effort, which I think in hindsight now works great, uh, worked great. And one of the examples I could relate to as you spoke was, you know, it, 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 at daytime, I used to uh, go to class and, in the, uh, and I used to be a teaching assistant for the undergraduate students. Um, and it was particularly a course that I had uh, assisted students with on uh, machine electronics. Um, and in the evening, I used to work at Taco Bell um, on campus. And there was this one student, undergraduate um, junior, who had come to uh, Taco Bell. And she had this puzzled look on her face. She said uh, something along the lines of, didn't you just teach me machine analysis and electronics about two hours ago? <laughs> what, what are you doing serving tacos, right? But, but I guess to your point, I think when you come from a, an ultra competitive environment, which India certainly is very, very similar to China, you have to sort of put in that extra mile, extra hour, extra effort to stand out. And if it's ingrained in your DNA, I think it goes an extra mile as an entrepreneur because every little extra inch as an entrepreneur that you that you uh, 
that you earn for and strive for, you know, reaps its benefits. Um, so tell us a little bit about Simple Direct. Uh, I think for our audience, they would love to know the story of, of what you do. Yeah, of course. So Jay, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of the podcast, um, my dad is a general contractor in China. So his mm -hmm. responsibility was to work with clients to build roads, bridges, and tunnels. So that was kind of what he does. And I, I didn't really have many personal experience in the construction construction zone, but I understood mm -hmm. how hard it is and what it means to be a contractor. So after coming here, I see the same issues facing many immigrant, um, mm -hmm. Im immigrant contractors here in the region of, of Toronto. And I see mm -hmm. them, you know, having a difficult job competing with the top contractors in the region who are established. Um, yeah, I am primarily Caucasian, although I don't think that's mm -hmm. any issue with that. But I just think they came here early, they established their brand. And, you know, for newcomers, um, contractors is having a lar very hard time to close those deals. So I mm -hmm. dig in a little bit deeper and I realized that, you know, for those contractors, how can we help them to get on the sales they need? Because mm -hmm. it is super difficult for contractors not be able to get a sale, right? And it mm -hmm. happened in my family. It simply means mm -hmm. that there's no income for your whole family, typically, right? And and mm -hmm. and if that if you couldn't get a job for two months, then your family doesn't have income for two months. So it's right. a super hard problem. And personally, it's it is one that I'm very passionate about solving. So yeah. and then at a time in China, the, there was a very popular concept called peer-to-peer -peer lending, uh, which mm -hmm. I was actually doing some research and I found the opportunity of you know creating a platform that lets you know immigrant contractors or just in general smaller contractors offer competitive financing options to their mm -hmm. clients and this is such a big deal because traditionally only less than i would say 0.5% of all contractors are able to to offer financing all right it's a very mm -hmm. established industry you have to have like millions in cash flow you have to you know have like 20 30 employees at least and we just broke through that barrier we nice. tore it down uh, like a wall <laughs> and we were able to allow anyone to use it, no matter your registration, no matter which state right. or which province you're in. And that's right. what we did with Simple Direct. Fantastic. Um, do you think of yourself as a fintech company or do you think of yourself as a platform that enables services? I definitely think we're, we're a fintech company because of the mm. money piece, right? Um, mm -hmm. having to build this start off on the ground up, I think one of the most challenging aspects is to find lenders in the US and here in Canada who are willing mm -hmm. to work with us when we're just like, you know, a company of two or three founders, right? right. So that was the right. most most significant difficulty. And we overcame that somehow. I was so surprised to this state of working with big mm -hmm. banks while not having any like, bootstrap, having a bootstrap, uh, you know, venture. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I would definitely consider us as a fintech company as a result. Got it. And how, how many times did you have to pivot to get to where you are? I mean, I'm guessing this is not how you started, right? Or, or, or did you? Uh, the idea was, uh, I think, largely the same. But I think we had mm -hmm. about five different pivots um, at nice. least, right? And, and the pivots typically come from, you know, are we serving smaller businesses, you know, the mom mm -hmm. and pop store, or are we serving enterprise companies that has, you know, like, you know, 10, 20, 30 employees? Right? right, and including are we charging people uh, fifteen hundred dollars a year, or are we charging mm -hmm. them a four percent four percent per financing fee? So mm -hmm. those iterations took us a lot of time to figure out. And mm -hmm. quite frankly, I started this business while I was still in college, 
So right. I wasn't moving as fast as I am now, of course. So <laughs> took some time to really get used to it and really got to the finish point. Yeah. Got it. And I'm guessing, I mean, there, there's a sex appeal associated with founders dropping out of college, right? Did you finish college or did you drop out? <laughs> I didn't finish college. Yeah. Oh, there you go. All I right. dropped out and early. One of the questions I had uh, was specific to that conviction that, that brings you back to wanting to scratch that entrepreneurial itch, right? And it, it's a giant leap of faith, especially when you're in college. So I guess the question to you is, did that come about when you encountered and met your co-founder or was it a spreadsheet that you whipped out and said the pros and cons significantly outweigh jumping into entrepreneurship? What, what, what was that like? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, and I think, you know, on the record, I'll, I'll first want to say it, if you're a student looking to uh, drop out of college to start your own business, my advice is not to in general. But mm. I think in my case, it was it was very special. I think. You know, when I started learning um, in China, I, I told you it was a very competitive environment. But a part of me always think that I want to do something new. I want to do something special. And that, you know, yeah. the traditional class curriculum just really doesn't, didn't sit well with me at the very mm -hmm. beginning of my academic life. So mm -hmm. even in high school, middle school, I always try to do a lot of, join a lot of clubs in school. You know, I, I actually like headed like a bunch of student newspapers, magazines, distributed them across the city, the province. So even including, even by then, I think I wanted to do something on my own and I have to go through class personally. So to answer your question, Jay, I think in college, I met my co-founders, but we didn't have any idea of dropping out. I think mm. it really came when we realized that we're at a product market fit. Yep. And that is a time where I decided it's time to drop out because first of all, we had a lot of revenue at the time. Um, mm -hmm. So I think by then I was making about six to $7,000. Um, a mm -hmm. month, right? Uh, US dollars. So mm -hmm. that's, and those were like stable revenue from, you know, MR, AR subscriptions. So it's not like we're mm -hmm. going to lose them all by the day. So first of all, like for my personal uh, living expenses, that was taken care of. And mm -hmm. second of all, we had customers who told us, you're the only ones I can use. There are no mm -hmm. other options for me. So, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, having seen so many projects, you know, over the past few years, I really think Simple Direct is a very competitive product, a very unique product, solving problems in the niche market. And yeah. when I found 10, 20, 30 customers telling me the same thing, and I know, okay, something's going on here. And right. this idea probably can can wait. So I decided to jump into and start working on my startup full time. Very cool. Um, and I think you touched upon a very interesting concept, and that is, of product market fit, right? A lot of entrepreneurs really struggle with the idea of when do I know that I have a certain product market fit? I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, think of, hey, I have two customers. If I raise a little bit of money, I can get that to 100. And the delta between two and 100 or, or even 10 uh, is based off of the assumption that I have product market fit. And something that you mentioned it was very interesting and that is that was when i had customers who would really struggle if i leave if simple direct was not available in my personal opinion that that's product market fit right when you have customers who who a pay for it and b would really struggle if that solution was taken out of the table i think that's when you know you have product market fit and it's just a question of significantly 
multiplying that offering. Um, do, do you agree or do you think you had product market fit way before? I, I agree with that. I think we really knew we are near a product market fit. Well, although I'm very careful not to use that word, I would more say it's a problem solution fit um, mm. for us. But like, I really mm. realized that we have that fit. Um, mm. And I think you're right, Jay. I, uh, my definition is if you take the product away right now, or let's say tomorrow, how painful mm. would your customers feel? How much mm. pain would have felt if you were to take that off the grid, right? right. And, and if you think of like a few products that raise a lot of money, but didn't work out at the end, right? Like I think in my top of my mind, Magic Leap was one of them. Mm. Um, you know, Clubhouse was very popular, but now a little yeah. bit winding down. And, mm. and, and those are great founders headed by great teams. But I'm just saying, when you take that product away, would you feel painful? Or not, mm. right? And if the answer mm. is no, then it's finding a hard time finding that product market fit. And I think for right. Simple Direct, it was the exact opposite. We we mm -hmm. we took it off. Our server was down for a day, and we had, uh, I think, twenty five long applications for that day. And our phone was ringing, like, exploded <laughs> by contractors trying to call us. So that is, I think, when I knew there was product market fit for us. And then, why did you take the server down? Was it an experiment or? Uh, no, it was unexpected. I think it just went down for some reason. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Got it. So speaking of pain, entrepreneurs, I mean, entrepreneurship from the outside looks so wonderful and fun, right? But it's only, it's only when you sit in the, in the, uh, step into the shoes of the entrepreneur, do you realize how many pains you go through every day and every day it's a new pain, right? Um, in the early days, what was that like? I mean, what were some of the challenges that you faced? Uh, yeah, I think one of the most significant challenges for us, I will say us is like a, you know, prop tech, you know, upper cultural contracting type, right? So for us, the most difficult challenge was to understand our customers. Because mm. although I was born and raised in an entrepreneurial family, my dad was general contractor, I haven't really spoken with anyone outside of my comfort zone who is a contractor. Mm. And quite frankly, um, being a student at the University of Waterloo, uh, I have a very different lifestyle than my customer who, right. you know, for example, as a contractor, have to drive out at 6.30 a.m. in the morning, driving right. driving a truck, going to customers, repairing. But I knew nothing at a time. And I think right. one of the things for us is like, how can we get to know our customers the best? Mm -hmm. And I think I spent a lot of time there initially. Um, and mm -hmm. also just to figure out how to sell. Um, mm -hmm. I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs who are fortunate enough to have the experience of selling, but I see myself as an engineer, software engineer. I was raised as a software engineer in computer mm -hmm. science uh, as a product manager. So I had a you know really tough time trying to pick up the phone and call call 100 customers. And that was scary for me. That was, um, although everyone was so friendly mm -hmm. to my astonishment, um, but I was so scared to pick up the phone trying to call call someone in the middle of the day when they might be working, when they might just hang up on you for no reason. Okay. So those two were the hardest challenges when we're just starting out. It's such an important message that you sort of laid out there so easily. And I think, I think entrepreneurs, especially early stage founders have to really embrace that idea of being uncomfortable at the expense of being uncomfortable to be able to sit in the shoes of the customer, right? It's so, so, so simple and yet so difficult to to execute and I'm, I'm so excited that you did it i didn't do it and i failed of course <laughs> and my uh, my co-founder went about uh went about doing it in 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 my first startup 
Um, and as you scale, George, how how did those pain points change? I mean, did you encounter new challenges every single time the organization evolved? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. I, I think every one or two months, the company looks significantly different from its former <laughs> self. And and mm-hmm. I had personal experience leading that. So, for example, there was the one we were just starting out. We just three or four co-founders at University of Waterloo doing things in a dorm room. And then two mm-hmm. months after, we have three software engineers joining the team. We have three people on the sales team from Austin, Texas and Dallas, Texas. And mm-hmm. just having so me suddenly becoming from working with your friends to leading a team of six, right? Of, of actually 10, if you count my co-founders, leading right. a team of 10 from nothing in three months, two months, that is a right. significant challenge. And mm-hmm. leading people when you're like 19, 20 years old is another challenge. So, so uh, I will say the challenges evolve every two or three months. And every mm-hmm. two or three months I look back, oh my God, we're so different. But I'm glad that, you know, personally speaking, my abilities of like leading the team, my abilities of everything is, is improving as right. the same with my co-founder. So I'm really happy about that. Got it. And speaking of co-founders, right? How um, important or dangerous do you think it is to start a company with friends you know there, there are two aspects to this right one is you've started with somebody and then you develop the friendship and the other one is you have this great friend or friends um and you predicate the success of the company that you are about to build on this relationship that's already established so what's that like and i'll give you my perspective yeah, of course. I think I think first, I I think you, we need to know if your our friends are entrepreneurial, and mm-hmm. I think for me, I learned that the hard way. Right? You need to know if mm-hmm. then if your friends are entrepreneurial or they're not. Are they the corporate mm-hmm. type or entrepreneur type? And mm-hmm. a few very distinct examples is like for for my co-founders, um, mm-hmm. none of them have started their own business before we did this together, but mm-hmm. they all came from entrepreneurial families. Um, and their parents, or at least their dad, from what I know, is working independently and, mm-hmm. you know, starting a business. It could be real estate, it could be being a realtor, uh, it could be, you know, being a contractor, it could be a truck driver, it could be anything. Yeah. But they're not really come from a corporate ladder type family. And I personally speak, just personally speaking, I think that has helped me a lot. And I think mm-hmm. those people working with me, they understand what is it like to be in a startup. They understand changes happen from day to day. You don't expect stability. That's what the game is for. And I'm really grateful to start be starting with friends like that. But, you know, my journey doesn't really start that early. Um, for my first year of college, I started my business with people of the corporate type, if you may. And quickly, I understood our goals were misaligned because they mm-hmm. wanted to do a startup so they can go into the big four, then go into mm-hmm. Google and Amazon with us being a side project. Right. The misalignment right. was very clear. And then it was, we both decided it wasn't a fit and, you know, some projects failed that way. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I I think that's well put, which is, as in my case, in my first startup, um, my uh, other two partners and I, we'd all come from non-entrepreneurial backgrounds and our parents weren't entrepreneurs either. But then I think the bite um, to get into the space was compelling because we had all worked with giant corporates, right? And we'd sort of been disillusioned and we said, right, let's just go and build a build a startup. I think with our credibility, et cetera, there's there's the opportunity to build something and change the world. And you know, we went on to build this IoT startup. In my second startup, 
the exact same thesis didn't work. Mm, we had an issue with uh, potential potential investors, and then the chemistry broke down, and then we decided to shut shop. So one question to you, right? And this is probably where both of us can bring contrasting experiential backgrounds, right? And that is, you started straight out of college, right? You, you pretty much, right, as, as close to mm -hmm. um, college as possible. So if you were to give advice to young 20-year-old entrepreneurs uh, who are looking to choose between, hey, I want to start a startup right off the bat, or I want to go build experience for about 10 years and then go start a startup. Which path would you advise them to go down? That's a very interesting question. Um, I actually have friends in my life who went on both both paths. And to be quite honest, I think, you know, I, I think it really depends on a few factors. And one mm -hmm. of them includes family circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. Because because the, the point of being a start building a startup is that you're not going to get paid initially right. for maybe quite a while. And maybe that's changing now, but I think I still think that's true. You're, you just mm -hmm. expect you wouldn't get paid for one year or two years. And can you right. get on it with it? Can you do mm -hmm. it? Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and just to be honest, I, I think I'm fortunate enough to you know be raised in a family that my my parents are independent and they have mm -hmm. been supporting me in the, in the first two, two, three years of my college life. Uh, right now, yeah. I'm independent. But when I just first started, I didn't really have to go work at other places uh, in terms of part time opportunities like, like Tim Hortons, Starbucks or do be mm -hmm. a delivery driver. I personally didn't have to do that. So I would just say, right, look at me. I can build a project. I can sustain mm -hmm. myself for a year because my parents were supporting me when I was in my second year of college. Right. Can you do the same? Right. Can, can you yeah. or, or maybe if you can find a few part time gigs, you can do that. But can you do that? Right. If the answer is no then I totally recommend graduate first, find mm. a comfortable place to learn and to evolve, mm. right? Mm. And part of it, Jay, I think it's for me being at the University of Waterloo, I have over one year of experience working at top startups in the Valley. And mm -hmm. and and the thing is, they, the, the things that they taught me, it wouldn't be possible to just figure out myself in college, right? right. And the, the, yeah. the thing is true, investors don't look at, people coming from college that seriously at first. Yeah. And there's a right. reason for that, right? And for me, I have the experience, I have the mentorship from my CEO, Nick, at a time. So that's why I think I, I'm a little bit special in that circumstance, but I will mm -hmm. give the latter route as an advice, go work and right. try to break out from that. Interesting, that's very interesting. So the thing I was thinking was, um, so I had worked for about, Oof, um, 10 years, right? Before I had the successful entrepreneurial gig. And the two schools of thought um, that came out of that experience was one, with a, bunch of ex with a bunch of years of experience, you can sort of build yourself to scale, right? So when you have initial traction and product market fit, because you have experience, at least in my case, we knew that for us to scale to the next level, you can bring a bunch of processes, you can bring, you can rely on a network of people that have worked with you. You have these amazing contacts in the, on, the, on the enterprise side, you can pick up the phone and call, and all that works. The stuff that doesn't work is exactly what you said, which is mm, when you're in your 30s, you have responsibilities, right? You have liabilities. Um, one of my co-founders, both my co-founders had at that time kids, 
and it's not easy to take a risk as much as one would be able to take in their 20s and when i look back i think of maybe i should have taken a risk when i was in my in my 20s right and so i guess never the twain shall meet but i think entrepreneurs currently have a fantastic opportunity in 2022 to go build whatever they want um I, I must admit the one thing that I guess my story and your story have in common is that when I went out to do my startup gig, uh, my wife who had a full-time job was bankrolling me, quite like how your parents were supporting you, I suppose. So I guess the bottom line is if there are entrepreneurs listening in, find out somebody close to you and they should be yeah, able to I, I underwrite your risk, I suppose. But I, I do agree with you, Jay. I think now it's the best time ever to start a business. There has never been a time like 2021, mm-hmm. 2022, never ever in the history we have seen such venture funding, mm-hmm. we have seen such an ecosystem booming, we have never seen so many entrepreneurs go in to the ecosystem of tech building. And if you're thinking of building, yeah. I think now it's a great time to start at least part-time if you have a dream of entrepreneurship, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Spot on. To, to the point that sometimes I keep joking with my wife that maybe now is the time to go build a startup. And she keeps reminding me, you know, you have a responsibility. <laughs> you, have a, you have a job <laughs> to run an organization. Um, speaking of which, right, um, this year or, or the, the last year and a half has seen a massive windfall of capital, which is now chasing startups, right? Do you... And having spent time in, actually in your case, in three ecosystems, right? you've been exposed to the Valley, you've been exposed to China and Canada, and all three countries are doing phenomenally well. Uh, Do you have a sense of the appetite for risk uh, as far as venture capital is concerned, being low in Canada, uh, in, in and I guess, is that affecting you as, as you want to scale? Uh, personally, I, I have not seen that yet. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think VCs understand that, you know, entrepreneurs come from different places and really all they care about, I think, in that perspective is, does a Canadian corporation impact mm-hmm. my rights as an investor? And right. I think, and, and I even think even with that, I think you see, you know, the safe financing documents. I personally know many founders here in, in Toronto who have raised uh, so many checks from US VCs, they mm-hmm. raise ch- rounds from US VCs. So personally speaking, I really do not think so. Um, mm-hmm. But personally, I have what I have seen is that you know the founders are here based in Canada uh, who have not have the influence of you know the Valley. Um, mm-hmm. They thought they what they needed to do is to build a successful business first mm-hmm. and got all the revenue first, got the growth first, and then look for capital. Um, mm-hmm. My advice would just be that you should start at least preparing for your raise on day right. one. Right. And that's something I think Canadian founders uh, should know, in my opinion, which I think yeah, is very important. Yeah. That's a good point. I think of organizations like the Accelerator Center, right? I, th- I think we have additional responsibility compared to some of the other ecosystem and innovation hubs in the world. And the reason I say that is of some of the ecosystems I've been exposed to, I think Canada is very unique in the sense that the government, Canadian government, both both at the federal level and at the provincial level and and even the regional level, provides far more support than any other ecosystem I've seen, um, especially financially. 
And it sort of makes me wonder if organizations like ours, right, the ecosystem players, accelerators, incubators, have to really step up our game and say, well, thank you so much for the capital. Um, I've got to now figure out a way by which A, I can support our founders and B, become self-sustaining. So I think I think it's an interesting time and space for for both for founders as well as for organizations like ours to figure out a mechanism by which we can really catalyze the Canadian startup ecosystem. Um, so correspondingly, one question to that, right? Uh, so in your case, if you were to have the opportunity to go global, um, would you do it on day zero? I think one of the challenges that is now slowly getting overcome post-pandemic is that founders are beginning to realize that, hey, I can actually go global on pretty much on day zero. Is that is that something that you've thought of and actively working on? Uh, it's, it's definitely something we have thought of. Uh, I, I would just say very specifically in my, in my sector fintech, there are lots of regulations and new processes in place that we have to meet. So for us, expanding to different countries also involves different risk appetites, different risk assessments, different mm-hmm. partners, and you know different uh, and different partners and different regulations. So yep. those things for us are a little bit difficult to implement. So yes. at the moment, we we are not exploring going global at the time. But mm-hmm. if you're not in fintech or if you're in an industry where there's not that much regulation, like Web3, crypto, um, yep. or even just B2B software, I have no reason to believe why you shouldn't go global on day one, right? Like the pandemic is terrible, but it has yep. allowed everyone to go digitally, work from home. So right. that, that would be my, my, my advice. Got it. In the, uh, in the limited time that we have, I'd love to do a, a quick rapid fire, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Yeah. Let's right, go ahead. Maybe, maybe three or four questions, right? But I'd love to pick your brains. <laughs> uh, all right. Question number one. Uh, fiat currency or crypto? Uh, crypto. Oh, okay. Question number two. In the pecking order of problems that uh, uh, that a George Boo at Simple Direct faces at a given stage in Simple Direct's life, um, chemistry of the team, talent, or venture funding for scaling? How would you place each of them? Uh, toughest being number one. Okay. Uh, I think the toughest for Simple Direct was venture funding. And mm-hmm. that is because we weren't really experienced. We did not know how the process works. Mm-hmm. And I think um, recruiting, I think talent is a very difficult task, not just for us, but I think across the board, look at a valley, look at Toronto, look at all the major tech hubs in the world. Mm-hmm. The talent war is ongoing and I'm feeling the pain of that every single day, even today. And I think uh, the, the team chemistry is honestly the easiest part for us since we started from college. Mm-hmm. So it was great. So we had awesome. full chemistry, no problem. That's it. Right. Uh, M&A or IPO? <laughs> uh, personally speaking, I would choose probably M&A. I think right. it makes more sense for Simple mm-hmm. Direct as a business. And I mm-hmm. think um, being a public company is something that you know a lot of entrepreneurs find it really hard to get used to. Because it's right. two different worlds, in my opinion. So I'll right. pick an M&A. Got it. And the last one, uh, by 2025, Simple Direct is a billion dollar company just breaking even and George takes home 100K or 2025, Simple Direct 
is a $100 million company fully bootstrapped and George takes home $10 million. <laughs> I'll pick $10 million any day. Uh, bootstrapping <laughs> is fun. I think it's a great way to start a business um, mm -hmm. still today. So I, I recommend bootstrapping if the entrepreneur is finding a gig. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think right now is a good time to do that. Fantastic. Hey, George, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, there's a ton that I feel I can learn from you um, just listening into your journey. Um, I would love to have you back on the podcast, but nevertheless, I would love to have conversations with you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for being with us. Yeah. And thank you, Jay, for being so humble. I think you're certainly way, way more uh, experienced than me. And I'm glad that you're, you can learn something from me. I've learned a great deal from you as well. And yeah, best of luck to the podcast and hope to be back soon. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. Waterloo Grit, an Accelerator Center podcast, is sponsored by the David Johnston Research and Technology Park and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by Bluemax. For more Waterloo Grit content, subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemax.io to join us on Discord.